Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight it is November 1st of 2012, and our guest is Leah Scholl. She is the author of the book, I Heart Sex Workers. It's going to be published very soon. I think there's going to be copies available in January. It's already available for pre-sale on Amazon if you want to go check it out there. Uh, Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, a harm reduction guide alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Leah Scholl, is right here. Uh, We're going to bring her on. Um, I'm just going to do one little more bit of intro. Uh, Leah is a Mennonite minister, so that's an interesting uh, little approach that we're going to discuss in some detail in the show. Leah's right here. How are you doing this evening, Leah? I'm really good. Thanks, Kenneth. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Um, How did you first get involved in working with sex workers? Um, As I was graduating from seminary, I had always had an interest in women in poverty. And while I was in seminary, I trained to do a program through, I went to a Baptist seminary, and I trained to do a program called the Christian Women's Job Corps, which was a sort of a welfare-to-work program through the Baptist um, Women's uh, Missionary Union. And it was uh, sort of a comprehensive idea of mentoring and and support and resources and all that sort of thing for women who were... At that time, what was happening was the, the welfare roles were being cut. So people were being pushed off of, of welfare, and so they didn't have anywhere to go and any support. So I trained to do that, and after I graduated from seminary, one of the founders of that called me and said, how would you like to take this program and work in strip clubs to do it? Um, And so I was uh, like, well, okay. So I trained to work in strip clubs. Um, A guy who's a pastor in Texas trained me to visit strip clubs, and he also was in corrections, so he taught me things to look for and what things to notice when dancers would come up and talk and all this sort of thing. So we sort of built this model of um, of visiting strip clubs with gifts for the dancers to build relationships with the dancers, trying to be inobtrusive, not affecting whether or not they were going to make money that night, um, and just trying to be nice as opposed to what most Christian groups would tend to be. Oh, did I say that out loud? Um, <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> but um, but I, so I started this, and I went into it with a real, um, you know, I don't I don't want to say I didn't have a missionary zeal about it, and I really wasn't ever sort of like let's just get them all saved. But there was a sense in my own head that I had something that these women needed, and that there that these women were victims in the situations that they were in. Um, and and then I got in there and I really started paying attention and really said, oh, that's not what's happening here at all, and um, and and sort of had to change my entire approach 
about why I was there and what I was doing and what I was offering. I was suddenly not there offering help anymore. I was only offering um, friendship, and I wasn't offering um, any sort of solutions where I could fix your life because I came in with an assumption that your life doesn't need fixing. Um, and started practicing harm reduction, meeting people where they're at, and supporting them through small changes in their lives long before I'd ever even heard the word harm reduction. Mm-hmm. The organization you were working for, um, was was it their mission to uh, rescue these women, or what was the, what was their view of things? Since I had created the organization, the, the, the mission wasn't ever... I, you know, but the but the the WMU would probably that who were the the Baptist group, they would probably say that they wanted to offer some spiritual support too. But I don't know that I don't know, I don't, I don't know that anybody would have said that they couldn't be Christian working there, or that they needed to get quote unquote saved. Um, I think one of the biggest turning points for me was reading a book by Louis Barana. Um, called Strip City, and there was a line in the book. Um, I swear this line is in the book, and I've gone back and tried to find this line in the book and not been able to find it, but it was the line was very much sort of like a stripper can't be saved. She has to save herself, and it really sort of shifted my idea from fixing. You know, it's not really mm-hmm. about fixing. Um, it was just about, you know, Eventually, what I learned was there's three major issues that women who are trading sex face, um, and I ended up not working solely with women. I've also worked with men who've traded sex, and um, and anyway, the the um, the three major things that they face are isolation, stigma, and economic disparities within and the rest of the world. And so, um, what I did was think about so isolation how do we address isolation we offer friendship um and so if someone said to me you know i'm i would really like to do something but you know it would be easier if someone went along with me to do that because you know that happens with all of us sometimes if we have to go to court it's a lot easier to go to court with somebody than it is to go to court by yourself so so we provided friendship to fight that isolation um, for the stigma piece of it, I, through preaching and talking and telling stories and doing that sort of thing, really tried to get people to think differently about sex work and about what it, in, not only what it entails, but about who would actually be in sex work, because I think that there's a lot of, um, I don't think a lot of people know who's in sex work. And now, mind you, this was also like 13 years ago, mm-hmm. so it was prior to the Girls Gone Wild kind of movement, and it really 13 years ago was not as acceptable to work in a strip club as it is today. Um, But even still, I mean, people still face the stigma. So we worked on trying to fight fight that stigma. Um, And then the the third thing was sort of like the economic issues that kind of go along with it. And some of them were making really great money, but some of them weren't, and some of them were spending money in ways that eventually they would regret, um, that sort of thing. You know, a lot of the dancers that I would meet would have, they'd be making a lot of money, but they wouldn't be putting anything aside or they'd be paying exorbitant rates for 
you know, their car note or things like that because they just didn't know that you could sort of bargain on that sort of thing. And so we did some we did some classes around financial management and stuff like that that tended to help with that and get people to sort of think about the future. Um, so the rescuing and getting people saved was um, initially what I thought, but it didn't last very long. It lasted like two weeks until I went, oh, crap, I don't know everything I need to know about this. And so I sort of went into learning phase and listening instead of instead of telling. Okay, I want to ask a little bit more about the history. Um, you said you were with the uh, women's uh, job corps thing to get women from welfare to work, and you well, said that was you... actually the, mm-hmm. the name of the organization that I founded was Starlight Ministries. Mm-hmm. So um, you went from there to work in the strip clubs. Um, Were you a minister at that point where you started in the strip clubs? I was, or I was on my way to ordination. Um, I had just graduated from seminary and was ordained about six months after I started Starlight. So you pretty much... did you? So in addition to working at the church, I would work, I was a minister in a church and I would go do this small ministry. We became a 501c3, and um, and so I managed this ministry in addition to being um, a part-time associate pastor in a church. Okay, so you, you pretty much, after you, after someone suggested to you that you work with the strip clubs, you pretty much went on your own and founded your own organization completely on your own. Right. Okay. Okay, okay, I clarified that. Um, I want to ask you some more about, okay, why is it important to respect sex, work, sex workers as human beings instead of stigmatizing them, instead of saying you need to be rescued, you know? Uh, well, primarily because they are human beings. Um, and and there is, there was at the time, and there I still do find this relatively often, that um that people make a lot of assumptions about people who are trading sex um and those those assumptions are generally not right um and and I also have to say like in the twelve years that I've been doing this, the stigma has changed a lot um so when I first started, if you had ever been a stripper, you couldn't find a job doing anything else because people would automatically assume that you were um well, that you, for lack of a better way of saying this, were a loose woman or um, that you had low morals or something like that. And I don't know that people assume that anymore. Um, but on the on the flip side of that, the um, – I just lost my train of thought. The, 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 the stigma that is now currently – okay, I worked with – I worked with people who were strippers for about two years. And then went away for a couple of years and then sort of came back to this ministry and sort of expanded it. And and part of that expansion was um, that I was sort of a chaplain for folks who were escorts and private dancers and people who were working online simply because I started writing a blog about what I did and things like that. And so, so the expansion from people who were... Um, for who were strippers, which is illegal sex work, was the expansion was to folks who were trading sex illegally, um, and 
their issues are somewhat different, although they're still the same. Um, what I eventually sort of morphed into is that the whole idea is that you increase people's agency. Mm-hmm. Um, agency is the ability to make your own decisions about your own life. And um, and there are a couple of things that really change people's agency, and fighting stigma is one of the things that changes agency. But also education changes agency. Um, <clears throat> money changes agency. Uh, lots of different things change your agency. And um, and so my goal was to provide opportunities for women to change their own agency. Um, so I went from working as a solo person, running an organization with a board and volunteers, and we had teams that were visiting strip clubs in um, in four different cities. We had about 100 volunteers, people who were beginning to understand that People working in strip clubs were not what they thought. I mean, there were mothers, there were um, young women, older women, there were some women who were using drugs, there were some women who weren't using drugs, there were women who were there because it was the best money they were going to make, there were women who were there because they really enjoyed the work, and there were women who were there because they didn't know anything else to do. Um, And then with sex work, as you move to the broader idea, you know, it's there's sort of its circumstances, its choice, and its coercion. And it's kind of like folks are can be anywhere on that scale. They can be someone who's there completely by choice. They can be someone who's there um, because they've been coerced, forced, or frauded. There are people who are there because they have really chosen this and this is their profession and they're good at it and they like it. And so, so it was majorly not looking at the women as if they were all the same. And that I guess that's what you're saying. Everybody's there for what they need, not for what I think they need. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think we see this a lot um, in this area as well as, you know, in addiction treatment. Um, you know, people read people doing addiction treatment really look down on people who are using drugs and it's like it's not you don't have a choice to use drugs and maybe the person that's using the drug says you know this is what I want to do and yeah. you know somebody out there is deciding no you have a disease you can't help it I'm going to cure you I'm going to rescue you from your disease and I think we see the same thing uh with sex workers it's true and and there is there's a sense that that people say, I'm going to take my experience and I'm going to um, impose my experience upon you. And there's also, for me, there's sort of an underlying statement in all that, which is you don't know what's best for you, but I know what's best for you. Exactly. And, and, And that was what I unlearned my first year in doing ministry with people who are trading sex is that I don't know what's best for you. You are the only person that knows what's best for you in any given situation. And so in in all of um in all of the work I've done and of course so I worked at Starlight, I ran Starlight for about nine or ten years and then I went to work for HIPS in D C and HIPS I think is probably one of the premier organizations of harm reduction. I know that you said that you've interviewed Cindy before on mm-hmm. on this show. Um, 
Cindy is the person that I have met in doing this kind of work who exemplifies harm reduction in everything that she does. So, like, I mean, craziness could be going on at the office. A client could have come in and stolen stuff out of someone's desk, and her harm reduction response was honesty, meeting people where they're at, being very clear about what your expectations are, and letting them make the decision about where they what they wanted and um and and that was sort of the the introduction to harm reduction to me that makes the most sense. I mean, I can't come to you and tell you that you need to stop drinking or using drugs, like not everybody needs to stop using drugs or drinking mm-hmm. um, it's that uh, you know it's 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 all about what you want and what would make you know. Anyway, yeah, we should exactly. uh, we should uh, clarify for the audience the acronym HIPS. HIPS is an organization, and the acronym is Helping Individual Prostitutes Survive. And I believe they're in Washington D.C. They are in Northeast Washington D.C. And there's a couple other agencies uh, in the U.S. too that have the same mission. Uh, I think HIPS is uh, the best known and maybe the biggest um and you know we interviewed cindy clay you can go back in the archive and listen to that it was a great interview and it's a really great organization and um in addition to working with sex workers they do um a syringe exchange program there and so their client base is a lot broader than just sex workers um so you know we had a lot of um I mean, just a variation of clients. It wasn't. I mean, I know that they started out as a sex worker organization, but they had expanded by the time I'd been there to working with all kinds of folks. Now you um, said you, you said you saw ahead. less stigma with uh, people who are strippers, but how about people who trade sex? Do you think they're still just as stigmatized? I think I think they are absolutely. I mean, you have a situation like. Um, the school teacher in New York who came out as an advocate for folks who were trading sex because she had at one point traded sex, and she was a tenured school teacher in New York and lost her job. Um, you have people who, I mean, you know, you cannot say on a resume that you are trading sex. Um, <laughs> yeah, I also I... think, yeah, it's not a really, it's not a really good resume booster. Um, I think that there's something more to it than just stigma around it. Um, it's it's almost as if it, there are so many assumptions that people make around sex workers, especially people who are who are um, trading on a regular basis. I mean, because you're you know you have such a wide variation in sex workers too. You have everybody from you have some folks who are doing legal work and stripping is legal. Um, and and in you know in working a, a phone being a sex phone operator that's totally legal, um, but then you get into escorting and and then you also get people who are trading sex just to survive. So they're having sex with someone to have a place to stay tonight or to get a meal or to um, to get their you know to get some drugs or things like that. So they're on a on a different economy. Um, and and in that, 
you know, you still in those situations you're dealing with people who are usually in extreme poverty. Um, usually, you know, I think I think that people I think there are a lot of people who would say, Well, these people got themselves there together, not looking at the circumstances around how they got into trading sex for survival needs. And and there, there's just so many assumptions that people who don't know sex workers make about people who are sex workers. So they assume, lots of them can, will assume that people who trade sex are high-level, expensive sex workers like, um, uh, what was the center, what was the governor's name in um, New York? Oh, Spitzer? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have that. The, the the young woman that he had hired um, as their image of who a sex worker is. So she's a, a well-paid call girl who um, is, you know, probably well-educated, probably has lots of options in her life, and she's chosen this. Um, and I, I do think that a lot of people tend to go towards that. We're still so uncomfortable with the idea of sex that, that I mean, you know, the stigma starts with our idea of what sex is, and and so we still women are still sort of vilified for enjoying sex, and so many of those women find that that this is a way that they can make a living, doing something that they enjoy, but people don't want really women to enjoy that. I don't know. So the the stigma the stigma can be different. Um, but I don't think most of the time people think about the people who are trading sex in their on the alley behind their house or um at the hotel just down the street and who are doing it really for survival needs day to day. Well, I think there's a real tendency um for most people to, you know, they pigeonhole there's either the high price call girl for the spitzer or there's the crack whore and that's about the number of categories they have. Right, and there's a wide variation from one to the other, and um, and a wide variation of why people are there from one to another. Yeah, and some people, well, you've talked about this in your book, I think. Some people don't uh, trade sex on a regular basis, but they do it on occasion. Right. Oh yeah, I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people who will do just a little bit here and there, and they need to. Pay for Christmas. Yeah, I mean it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it. I mean, there's just a there there there's just so many reasons why someone would be there, and and at one point, some point in in working with sex workers, it's kind of the reason why I wrote the book. Um, I love this saying that like you can either stand around pulling bodies out of the river, or you can go up to the top of the river and see who the hell is throwing bodies in. And I feel like most of the work that I have done has been pulling bodies out of the river, you know, just recognizing that people are there, offering support and resources and that sort of thing to folks who want them. But at some point, you gotta figure, you got to think to yourself, why is this a viable option? Why is this better than what other options are? And try to address some of those things. And And... My book covers a lot of what those things are, too. So it's things like um, sexism, racism, 
um, transphobia. Um, did I say racism? I think I said that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's more the it is more the root injustices that exist here in the United States and in the world, and and so largely based in gender politics and in um, and in economics. And at some point, those things are going to have to be addressed. And there's, you know, there's, there there will always be people who want to trade sex. But other than the people who want to trade sex, there shouldn't be anybody else. It shouldn't be the best job that a woman can find. Um, it shouldn't be the best pay that a woman can make. Um, I mean, uh, the statistically, I don't know, I saw last week that they were talking about women making 72 cents to every dollar that men make. And we're the primary caregivers of children. And we're the ones that bear the, that responsibility, both physically and emotionally. And it's like we have to do something as a as a as a generation and as a people that changes some of that you know some of that um, injustice. And that was really the book is about looking deeper into the issues that cause people to go into sex work, and and then of course harm reduction for folks who are already in it. Well, that's hugely important. I mean, it's a hugely important chance to give everyone an opportunity to use their skills and their abilities. And, you know, everybody, it's just almost everywhere you go in the United States, somebody's getting prejudiced, you know, they're getting prejudiced about something. Um you know, when I was in Minnesota, I, I had people who were prejudiced against me because I was a, I was a farm boy from the country, and you know, and I was a poor white trash, and you know, they didn't want poor white trash around them. Right. right. So, at some point, we have to begin to judge people on the content of their character rather than what their skin color or the way they talk or what their education level is, or where they come from. Or right. what they do for what they want to do for a living, or if they, you know, if they choose to use drugs recreationally, or choose not to use drugs recreationally, if they choose to um, have sex with the people of their own gender or of other genders, you know, just, just leave everybody alone and let you know. But you know, in our capitalist system, you know, that's the whole thing of having power over people is you know having economic inequality is built in. Right. Right. It is. It is, and um, and as as much as you know, I always laugh that I'm the sort of pinko pacifist pastor. It's it there is a responsibility on all of us. You know, you hear it over and over and over again. In this election, especially, I did this myself. Well, the reality is is that we are responsible for one another. We have to take care of one another because if we're only in it for ourselves. It's not much of a life, and it certainly isn't much of a life if you're the person who can't make it. And so um, I always feel like, you know, I, I, I'll backtrack a little bit here. I, I met with a woman yesterday who works for an anti-trafficking organization, and, and they're, you know, they are big on rescue. They even use rescue language and victim language and all this sort of thing. And and it's like 
the worldview of I am here to fix you needs to go away. It is mm. like I am not here to fix you. I am here to be responsible for myself and to be kind and loving to other people. And 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 it, we just seem to have gotten away from that. I think the more we move into cities and the more we move away from our core core communities and that sort of thing, I think we move away from that. That's a yeah, much the, bigger problem than I can fix. <laughs> it is a huge problem of this. I I'm going to fix you. That means I'm better than you. You're you're right. fucked up. Um, yeah. You know, our program, you know, the Hams program doesn't take the view at all. We say. If you want to change your drinking in some way or other, if you want to be safer, if you want to cut back, if you want to quit, here's some tools that you can use. We have a whole toolbox here. Pick the ones that you like. And if you don't want to change your drinking, well, it's not on us to fix you. You know, we're offering you things to use if you decided you want to make a change for yourself. We're not out there to rescue anyone. Right. And not to judge anyone. You and be where you are. Exactly. What do you think about the media's portrayal of sex workers? Um, you know, sometimes I'm heartened by the media portrayals of sex workers and that sometimes there's once in a while you see smart, savvy sex worker who's really on the ball and that sort of thing, and I've met a lot of people like that. Um, on the other hand, I don't like the you know, the the sort of streetwalker view of sex workers. It's really not exactly how it happens anymore anyway. Um but I I I believe my I think my always my point is with this is that sex workers should be the ones who determine how their stories are told and why their stories are told. And the media, like the news media especially, is all about, you know, titillating Woohoo, sex workers, even when it's a, an issue of violence, they are fixated on the idea of sex rather than work. Um, when I, I, I had left Starlight for a couple of years and was being a pastor at a church, and and it was I was living in D.C., and there was a young woman who had been a stripper who what had was missing. And the news reports, every one of the news reports I saw used stock photos of a woman on a pole. No faces, just a body on a pole. So what does that say about the person who's being portrayed? She's not a head. She's just a body. She's just an image of sex. She's nothing really more than that. And they used pretty hideous language about her, um, now, a few days after they know, after she was registered as missing, they found her body, and she had been murdered by her boyfriend. So it was a domestic violence case. Um, it really was completely unrelated to the fact that she was a stripper. And that is sort of the story that sucked me back into working with sex workers because the violence does happen. The media then goes forward and does more violence. Can you imagine being her family and that's what she's remembered for? Um, and, and you know, to be a titillating, you know, ratings booster on the news? Um, 
And that's why I'm on the board of the Red Umbrella Project. Um, and the Red Umbrella Project is a is an organization out of um, New York that specifically amplifies the the voices of sex workers. So through media training and advocacy training and storytelling storytelling training, we train people who are sex workers or have been sex workers how to tell their stories. And we try to provide opportunities for them to tell them at the highest level so that instead of having the media talk about us, about women who are trading sex, it is, it is, it is people who are trading sex telling stories about themselves. Um, we, you know, there's this phrase, the, uh, give voice to the voiceless, and apparently it's actually in the Bible but um, at least somebody told me recently it was in the Bible. I really haven't looked it up. But but we're to an age now in, that we don't want to give voice to the voiceless because that sort of means that they don't have voice. And our recognition is that all women, all people who are trading sex do have a voice. So we want to give a microphone to the people who have a voice um, because I don't want to speak for someone who is trading sex. I want them to speak for themselves. I think that's essential. Uh, what do you think about legalizing uh, the sex trade? Um, you know, I have heard a lot of people who are in the sex industry say that they would prefer a model of decriminalization rather than legalization. I'm not really sure how well that works in Nevada. Um and part of the reason why is because then you you have mandatory testing, you have licensing, and, you know, if you ever do want to hide the fact that you had been a sex worker, but it's legalized and you have to register as a sex worker, then forever it's on your resume, whether you want it to be on your resume or not. Um, so most folks that I know would advocate for a decriminalization, which would just mean that it would the law would go away that... that um, that prostitution is against the law, and it would just be that um, it would just be another form of labor, and it would actually be covered under labor laws. And I feel like it might make sex worker lives, sex workers' lives, safer. Um, but I don't know what the possibility of that is. I have heard recently that sex workers are more less interested in. Decriminalization. I'm not going to say that. I, I do know that one of the things that sex workers are talking about right now is that anti-trafficking laws are making their lives less safe, and and so so I think sort of the focus is going perhaps away from the idea of decriminalization to fighting these anti-trafficking laws that are being put on the books, where anyone who uses the money that was gained through um, having sex would be considered a pimp and could be um, prosecuted as a pimp or as a trafficker. Um, and those laws uh, also sort of tie the hands of um, service providers because they're not, they're not necessarily getting the money, but they may know that someone is underage and trading sex and um, and by not turning them in, that means that they're the trafficker too. And so there's a lot of fear around the trafficking, the anti-trafficking laws. Um, in addition to the fact that there's 
there's sort of this thing with these anti-trafficking laws that they're redundant. I mean, it's already illegal to force someone to have sex. That's called rape. It's already illegal to coerce someone into having sex. It's already illegal to take someone against their will. Um, But these anti-trafficking laws are sort of tightening down on anything that has to do with sex trade and making it more difficult and more dangerous to trade. Okay. I was just thinking uh, a little bit, well, I lived in Japan for a long time. I was thinking about, you know, before World War II in Japan when, you know, prostitution was legal completely and, but it was a lot less stigmatized too. I mean, not only was there, uh, you know, there were the health, regular health inspections, there was a very low rate of sexual disease transmission, but a lot of people would eventually marry sex workers, you know. They, right. It was common. So it was, but there was, there was less stigma. You know, it was only basically it was only outlawed in Japan after World War Two because they wanted to look good in the eyes of the United States. I don't really know much about that. So yeah, I don't, the, talk about, I don't know. Okay. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to belabor it, but it's uh, you know after it was outlawed, it was taken over by organized crime. Uh, Rates of transmission of sexual diseases went through the roof, uh, you know, not surprisingly. Well, uh, New New Zealand, I think it's New Zealand, just um, decriminalized sex. And I think it's an interesting model to look at. Um, Mm -hmm. People are reporting good things. I don't know if anybody's reporting bad things because most of my, you know, circles of uh, folks that I read and stuff like that, they're reporting pretty good things out of it. But, you know, I mean, it, it, I always find that you can either be a service provider as far as as advocacy goes. You can You can be one-on-one advocating for folks or you can be doing the legislative piece of it, and it's really difficult to do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I've really tried to stick with the the um the one on one sort of resource instead of the advo- you know advocating stuff and again training people to do their own advocacy okay uh did, does your book talk anything about sex workers in the bible it does um i actually do a tradition called midrash um which is a a tradition of taking uh the hebrew bible the old testament and filling in the details of a story. So it's sort of like the Red Tent, which was a big book maybe six or seven years ago, maybe a little longer than that. But it's um, So I take the stories of sex workers in the Bible, and I sort of fill in the details about them. Now, they're not necessarily just details that I made up. Some of them might be made up, but a lot of them are from other Jewish, from Jewish writers through the ages saying, well, this is how this happened or this is how this happened. Or it might be, it might might might, might have one Jewish scholar who says this and another Jewish scholar who says the opposite. So it's picking and choosing between those Jewish scholars. And so every section of the book starts with the story of a sex worker. We start with um, Tamar is in there. She was the daughter of... Hmm... 
now I just don't even want to say all this because I think I'll get them wrong, the details wrong. <laughs> That's how bad a pastor I am. I mean, so it, it is Tamar who was the, the daughter-in-law of Judah, and she ends up dressing up like a like a sex worker to have sex with Judah, and she gets pregnant by him, and it's a, you know, it's a longer story than that. And then I use Rahab in there who... Um, yeah, some of the texts will say that she was an innkeeper, and then other texts will say that she was an Adam. Um, I use Esther, who was, as a young girl, put into a harem um, of the king of Persia and um, and sort of given these treatments and sort of... I, I like to think of her as sort of like the honey boo-boo of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> She's, she is... Um, trained to um, pleasure the king and then the king is so pleasured by her that he makes her he makes her the queen um, so it's like this big it could be a big beauty pageant but it, it also her uncle is the person who delivers her to the king so by today's standard he would totally be trafficking um, he would be a trafficker and um, anyway um and and that story really tells how someone sort of makes different decisions. Um, and then I talk about the woman at the well um, with Jesus who, when Jesus says, go get your husband, she says, I have no husband. And um turns out she'd been married like five times. She was living with a man. And there's no sort of judgment from God, from Jesus, about who she is and what she's done and that sort of thing, which... I think it's probably one of the few times in her life she hadn't experienced judgment. And so that I sort of go into the, the tenets of harm reduction around that one because that's the place where it starts. There's no judgment. Yeah, that's very important. Um, and, you know, that's so, there's so many, so many Christians today, and they're all about judgment. That's what they're about. Right. You really don't see that from Jesus. In case anybody's wondering, you, you just really don't. Not to say that that um, that there aren't some pieces of the Bible who can be very judgmental. I mean, we've all seen the Bible used against gays and lesbians, and we've all seen it used against people who are trans, and we've all seen it used against people of other races and that sort of thing. So it's not a text that that um, that. It's not a perfect, well, boy, I get in trouble if I say it's not a perfect text. <laughs> but it's, it's a richer text than than oftentimes what the surface says. And so you have to look a little deeper for meanings than just, you know, a man shouldn't wear women's clothing and a woman shouldn't wear man's clothing. I mean, it's like you have to go deeper. Why would they think this? Why would this? group of people who are trying to understand their relationship with God and with each other, why would they say that? I mean, they have other countries around them who are looking to take their land. Why would they want traditional gender roles? Because they would want to get bigger as an organ you know, as a as a group of people, as a community. And gay sex really doesn't result in children. You know, I mean, so so there's deeper reasons for this than just it's wrong. I mean, it's it's not it's wrong. It's in this in this context, it's not what's best for us. We don't live in that context anymore. 
And so um, so you can certainly, what they call, proof text the Bible to come out against a lot of things. But ultimately, ideally, the idea is is love. And I do believe my, you know, sort of what I run my life on is that the biggest component of love that we're able to do is acceptance. And that's accepting people where they are and how they are and, and what they want for themselves rather than what we want for them. Well, I remember there's a story of one of the saints. I can't remember which saint, but he got challenged uh, that he needed to define Christianity while standing on one foot or they were going to kill him. And he said, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That was that. That That was Jesus who said that. <laughs> oh, that Actually, was Jesus. The story who said it is, that was originally. Jesus. The, the story is that a that a rabbi comes to him and says, "What's the what's the most important thing?" And what he says is, "Love God, love your neighbor as yourself." Um, but there's another story that you're thinking of that I think it's Rabbi Akiva, and he stands on one leg and has to. The the challenge is stand on one leg and tell me what the what the the whole of the law comes down to, and he stands in one leg and says, "Don't do to other people what you don't want done to you," or something to that effect. You kind of got two stories mixed in there together, but um, but it's it. Is, I mean, the, that's the point: is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's not figure out what your neighbor is doing wrong and go fix them. It's not um, you know I, what I personally think. I want to say this in the nicest possible way, but a lot of times what I find with Christians is what they think of love feels a hell of a lot like hate. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I don't I don't look at at some of these Christian movements of exclusion and go, "Wow, that's a really loving act." You know, it's really a hate-filled act and a and even more than hate, maybe fearful act. And um, I think that people are afraid of what they don't know. And so they are trying to control everybody else because of what they're fearful for. Well, you know, one of the most hateful statements I've ever heard people make is, I will pray for you. (laughs) Yeah. Prayer is a weapon. Yeah, as a weapon, you know, because you're such an evil, hateful person, and I'm so such a loving person. I will pray for you because you're so rotten. <laughs> yep, exactly. And it, it's always, you know, you're doing something that I don't agree with, and so I'm going to pray for you. Um, you know, I mean, it's that is definitely a misuse of um, of the, sort of the tools that God has given us. I'm going to pray that you get better. You know, it, that's just not not what it's about. And generally, what those people need is to go home and pray for their own attitude. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, you know, the good prayers are the ones you know that they admit that you're imperfect and you know ask try to do better. Yeah, yeah, and 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 again, that that is changing yourself, not trying to change the people around you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think we're coming to a close. That might be a good thing to leave our listeners with. Um, but tell us once again, what's your book and when is it going to be available? I know it's available for pre-order on Amazon, but tell us. It is. 
the title of the book is I Heart Sex Workers. Um, it's by Leah Claire Scholl, and it's subtitled A Christian Response to People in the Sex Trades. And it's actually going to be available. It's from Chalice Press, and it will be available at the end of this month as an ebook. And so, whatever format of ebook that you have, at the end of November, it will be available. And then the printed version will be out in January. And so, you can pre-order printed versions. Um, if you, I think, if you go to Chalice Press's website, you can probably go ahead and you can probably pre-order the the EPUB and the the different formats for your for your um, e-reader. Okay. I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Leah Scholl. Well, thank you for having me. And we're going to be on hiatus for a little while here. Um, I'm going to be at the Harm Reduction Conference in two weeks. Uh, next week, well, I was supposed to be at the gala for the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center. We're not certain yet because of... Hurricane Sandy, if it's going to be going on, but I'm going to be really busy involved with that work anyway. So there's no show next week. So in three weeks' time, uh, we will have uh, Bruce uh, Levine, who's going to be talking about his book, Common Sense Rebellion. And we'll see you all when we do the next show. So thank you, everyone, and good night. <laughs>